Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the 80 Years War. And this is because I've had, a, I've had a stack of emails from listeners in Belgium and the Netherlands uh, requesting episodes and all, all sorts of different bits and pieces of, of Dutch and Belgian history. So I thought, you know what, bugger it. I'll put them all together and I'll just do one big or probably two big episodes, to be honest. It's a pretty big topic. Two big episodes about how terrific the lowlands are. Um, the 80 Years War has some of the most ridiculous and entertaining stories, especially the first half of it. Um, and it showcases some of the absurd history of the Dutch-speaking world. So, to all the Belgian and all the Dutch listeners, Bart van Gilder, Derek Verlei, Walter Hersertz, Bob Jacobs, um, and, and, of course, Michiel... I've, I've got two things to say. Firstly, thanks for all the suggestions being fans of the podcast. And, and secondly, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for butchering your name. No, you know what? No. Everyone except for Bob Jacobs there, at least this bloke, he knows what he's, he's doing. He doesn't have a name that looks like a bad Scrabble rack. What is going, what is going on in the Dutch-speaking world? With no, Anyway, whatever. Anyway, the 80 Years' War, for those who don't know, it was more or less a war of independence for the people living in today's Benelux countries. This is Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg. At the beginning of the 16th century, this area was actually controlled by Spain, or a Spanish family at least, the Habsburgs. Um, but thanks to the 80 Years' War... By the end of the 17th century, much of it was now part of the new Dutch Republic, which uh, went on to become a major world power, do all the stuff with trade and art and science and, for some weird reason, tulips as well. Um, and finally, before we get underway, there's one, one little thing I want to cover off here, a little small note. While we're talking about the areas that would go on to become Belgium and the Netherlands and Luxembourg, those divisions didn't exist as such back in those days. And so when I say Dutch in these episodes here, I'm referring to the Dutch-speaking people, not actual literal Dutch people that you'd think of today from the Netherlands. So, you know, don't get cross when I talk about the Dutch city of Antwerp, for example, because at the time we talk about a culture group, talk about a, talk about a, um, a nation of people sharing the same language, same culture, that sort of thing, whereas obviously today very, you know, much more clear divisions between Belgians and Dutch people and uh, and Luxembourg Luxembourgians Luxembourgish people I don't know I've I'm already in so de- I don't you know I did this as like a uh, you know I was trying to celebrate Dutch Dutch culture Dutch history that sort of stuff and I've just stuffed it all up even before we inside the episode anyway 
We've got, let, we've got a lot to get through here, so let's not fiddly fart around anymore, and we'll get stuck into the uh, the story of the 80 Years' War here. So we're going all the way back, all the way back to the 1560s here, so a long way back, nearly 500 years, um, when uh, what we today call the Benelux countries uh, were instead an area known as the 17 Provinces, this, or, the, or Habsburg Netherlands as well, but we'll, we'll stick with the 17 Provinces here. They were part of the Spanish Empire, um, uh, and they called them, this is not a joke, they actually had a different name for them entirely, they called them Those Lands Over There. Uh, that was the the name that was given to this uh, this part of the Spanish Empire by the Spaniards themselves, um, and as you probably know, as you no doubt aware here, the Spaniards red hot bloody Catholics they are they they oh, mate these blokes they bloody love the Pope they love Jeezy crazy they couldn't get get enough of that uh, communion bread sucking down the holy wine or whatever like it's bloody vanilla Coke they can't just just can't stop themselves, and this is where the problem arises as. You know, most of it did when it came to Catholic and Protestants, because in the wake of the Reformation, the seventeen provinces they're f- they're filled with Protestants here. So the the you know the Dutch speaking world largely Protestant. Obviously, you know, also big fans of Jeezy Crazy, but uh, they're not they're sticking the old communion bread and wine right into the bin. No thanks, uh, no, don't don't want that, mate. They're actually doing actually they're doing a lot more than that. They're throwing a lot a lot of other things in the bin. Protestants uh, were living up to their names by uh, protesting very strongly against the the Spanish oppression of uh, of religious freedoms and and the, the Oppression of, of Protestants there, and uh, so much so that in 1566, Dutch Protestants are actually they're going about smashing up Catholic churches, destroying all their fancy icons and decorations, whatever else known as the as the uh, iconoclasm, uh, destroying all the all the you know the, the perceived ex- well not even perceived just actual literal excesses of the Catholic Church. So this means. Religious tension between the Spanish Catholics and the Dutch Protestants was very, very high, but after this, the Catholics cracked down on the Protestants even further after this iconoclasm. The Spaniards deploy a bloke named Fadrique Alvarez de Toledo. He's the Duke of Alba. Um, and he sends around 10,000 Spanish troops along with this duke uh, to tighten Spanish control. So the Spanish Catholics kind of cracking down on the Dutch Protestants they rule over here and, and sending in the, in, in the troops. Now, this bloke, the Duke of Alba, he's going around arresting and executing Protestants all over the place. He's pissing a lot of people off while he's doing that. And on top of this, the Spanish also started to levy huge taxes against the Dutch in retribution, and this stokes the fires of discontent even further. And it wasn't just the religious tensions as well, as you know, as I'm saying, the taxes here as well. Um, Dutch rulers weren't big fans of, of this overall political oppression, religious oppression, whatever else that it was. So, you know, the, the people who are, I guess, underneath, in, in the pecking order, just underneath the Spanish, the actual Dutch leaders themselves, they're not happy about it at all. And in the wake of this military crackdown, these increased taxes, they start to go from sort of sneaky, underhanded undermining of the Spanish authority towards actual flat-out, full-on rebellion. They're putting together, they're funding armies, they're putting, you know, putting money together and, uh, and, getting, and getting actual boots on the ground in terms of, uh, you know, trying to stand up for, uh, for for the rights of Protestants and Dutch people uh, around you know these seventeen provinces here, and this rebellion, it actually began properly in earnest when the, when when people obviously started dying. I guess that's the best way to uh, you know to, to to put a marker as to where it actually standed with the Battle of Heiligelie. Heiligelie? Not even that difficult. Just saw a lot of letters, thought it was a Dutch name. I thought I was going to have trouble with that. Nope, Heiligelie. Pretty easy there. I'm sure I've said it incorrectly all the same. Whatever. On the 23rd of May in 1568, a few thousand Dutch rebels actually defeated a small Spanish army. And this was when the 80 Years' War generally is considered to have begun. So they've set the stopwatch. They've got obviously very advanced stopwatch there. It's going to last for 80 years, apparently, just going around. You probably did that when you were a kid, you know, when you start a stopwatch and see what would happen when it would tick over to like more than 99 hours i remember we did that in, in in primary school one time but it got taken off us before we we were about like 40 or 50 hours or something and then rodney took us off us and uh, took it off us and reset it because we were looking at it in class so 
great story. Nothing to do with the Eighty Years War, but you know. Anyway, the the the, the war, <laughs> the war has begun. What a shambles! You'd think. You'd think that going up against the all-powerful Spanish Empire was a uh, a pretty bloody stupid thing to do, uh, to be honest, given its status as you know one of the most powerful nations on the face of the earth here. But fortune favours the bold, they say, and these Dutch were certainly pretty bloody bold, as you'll discover. Everyone loves an underdog story, and what's coming is one is a, basically the story of this scrappy group of rebels going up against one of Europe's supreme powers and using every trick in the book to get up and about here. So... We head into 1569 here. The Dutch Revolt is in full swing. It's being led by a bloke named William of Orange, very important figure in Dutch history. Now, this isn't the same William of, Or- William of Orange who was invited to become the King of England. That's about another 100 years away. Um, this William of Orange is that William of Orange's great-grandpa. Um, this William of Orange, we're going we're gonna to actually change tack a little bit here and, and call him by another name that he was known at, William the Silent. Uh, he was known as this because uh, he was, or William the Taciturn, I guess you could also translate it as, because uh, apparently he was, he was a very cluey negotiator and uh, a diplomat, and he'd mastered the art of knowing when to say nothing at all, which is obviously a very rare thing. But one thing he did say, I will say, one thing he did say was, I bloody hate those Spaniards, bloody hate them, I do. I'm going to get in, chuck the left and the right around and see what we can get done here with this little Dutch revolt. And uh, even, I mean, we call him the signer, but then then he goes on to say the next thing he says is chuck us that pen over there because I'm about to give letters of mark to a group of, well, basically pirates here, what he does. So this is this is one of the first uh, moves that William of Orange makes in terms of mobilising an enormous amount of people uh, in, in, into uh, supporting this Dutch revolt. And uh, all of a sudden, didn't expect it, wasn't on the docket, but surprise pirate history. Here we go. These pirates are known as the sea beggars. And William basically tells them, all right, boys, you blokes just go around and plunder and pillage the Spanish-controlled ports and harbours. No worries at all. That's what I want you to do. And they go, all right, Billy, old son, that sounds like good fun, eh? But here's the question. If all the Dutch ports are controlled by the Spanish... Where do we take all the loot and the booty and the treasure and all the all you know all the spoils of war that we got here? Where are we going to take that? We can't offload it to you know to the seventeen provinces here because the Spaniards control all the shipping. And William goes, mate, don't even worry about that. The English are Protestant as well, just as Protestant as us, and they bloody love us. They do. So you drop it all off there, and you can get your ships repaired, whatever else in in the English harbors, English ports. So. From 1569, the Dutch Revolt bolstered enormously now by these privateers, as they're now called. Basically, they were essentially pirates, but just, you know, it's just a freedom fighter slash terrorist type thing. They were basically pirates. We're calling them privateers here because, you know, they had these fancy bits of paper with all the scribbles on. Um, and these blokes, the sea beggars, they made reckless and wild attacks on Spanish ports, Spanish shipping, and they were hugely successful. This is because the Spanish weren't expecting to fight a war on the sea. They weren't expecting to have to take to the water here. And, and all of a sudden, the Dutch have this naval dominance just out of nowhere because they brought these pirates into the, you know, under the fold here. The sea, the sea beggars got the run of the place. They're cutting about, they're looting and pillaging. They're having a great time. And so the Dutch are off to a flying start, a sailing start on the sea. But things aren't going too well for them on land because that's where the Spaniards are, uh, you know, ready to fight. They, that's where they outnumber them, they outgun them, and the Dutch Revolt doesn't look like it's going to end too well. And then in 1572, despite them kicking goals with both feet on the sea, it seems like it's going to get a whole lot worse with the sea beggars now uh, facing a new threat, a new problem here. In 1572, Queen Elizabeth I of England, she finally bowed to Spanish pressure and she closed English harbours 
to the sea beggars. Now, this was a big problem because, again, the sea beggars are more or less the only thing keeping the Dutch Revolt afloat at this point, and they've got nowhere to go. They've got no ports to land in. They've got nowhere to, uh, you know, restock their supplies, repair their ships. They're in a world of trouble. The Dutch Revolt looks like it's on its last legs here. So... The sea beggars, they end up going, bugger this for a joke. They take the bull by the horns, however, and rather than, you know, give up and, and sail off to greener part, to not greener part, to bluer waters, I suppose, they decide instead that modern problems require modern solutions and they're going to find themselves a port. They're going to find a port by hook or by crook. No worries. They're going to get themselves a harbour. So. On the 1st of April, 1572, after being booted out of these English ports here, the sea beggars arrive at the port town of Brielle, and they are ready for a desperate and deadly fight against the Spanish so as to capture the harbour and secure a place to land, replenish themselves, repair their ships and whatever else. They are, they are re- you know, they've got the cutlasses in the teeth there, they've got, the, they've got the, uh, the pistols ready to shoot at the Spanish, they've got the cannons loaded, ready to go in there and start to give the Spanish a, a, a bit of a hiding, but they sail into the port and they are shocked, however to find that the Spanish just aren't there. The Spanish have left the town completely undefended. They're off fighting in Utrecht, leaving the town completely, no garrison, nothing, right? So the sea beggars, they capture Brielle for the Dutch just like that. Don't even have to worry. But they, I mean, you know, they're going to all sorts of occupational health and safety risks, putting cutlasses between the teeth. I mean, that's very dangerous. up with a Chelsea smile doing that. and was all for nothing. So they're there bloody kicking themselves. But... They capture the town of Brielle, they reprovision their ships, they do a bit of repairs, whatever else, and then obviously they're about to sail off and continue to, you know, wage this war on the seas. And one bloke goes, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's, why do we have to leave? We, I mean, let's just let's just hold the port. We can. This can be now where we base our operate. We don't have, you know, we've been booted out of these English ports. Let's just, let's just stay here. And he's absolute genius. All of a sudden, they've all gone, oh, mate, you're absolutely right. And so, after having captured the town of Brielle for the Dutch, this kicks off a huge domino effect of all these other Dutch towns that begin to join the ailing revolt because now they've got a firm presence, a port, a harbour from which they can actually start, you know, waging a real war. And the sea because on top of that, they sail to Vlissingen, which falls immediately to the Dutch as well because it's not defended by the Spanish. And because of this, a whole stack of other Dutch towns also come over to the rebels as well because now all of a sudden the wind seems to be in the sails of the revolt, both in a literal and a figurative sense. Things are looking up for the Dutch revolt. But after these embarrassing defeats and after all of these areas declaring for the rebellion, King Philip II of Spain, he decides that his retribution will be swift and terrible. He orders the Duke of Alba, this bloke that I was talking about before, he orders him to bring the Dutch to heel no matter what. And I tell you what, this Duke fella is not a bloke who did things by half. The Duke of Alba, He put together groups of Spanish soldiers and mercenaries and he ordered them to go to all of these rebel towns, recapture them and make an example of them to the rest of the rebels. Now, to make things even worse, get this, you know what he did? Well, you know what he didn't do? He deliberately didn't pay these soldiers enough. He underpaid them quite deliberately so as to piss them off and tacitly encourage them to ferociously loot and pillage the towns that they attacked. And again, and I'm sorry to say, this worked. This, 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 you know, sort of scorched earth policy, I guess if you want to call it like that. These soldiers undertook what is known today as the Spanish Fury. They were led off the leash by the Duke. They were, you know, given, they were given nothing but a firm pat on the arse as they went off to, uh, to bring these Dutch towns to heel. And so these soldiers, you know unruly and ready for a scrap they looted and pillaged and did all sorts some some absolutely atrocious some 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 terrible things they did which we'll talk about briefly here in october 1572 
Mechelen was attacked by the Spanish and its inhabitants were tortured, murdered and much worse. So for three days, the town was put to the fire and the sword as the Spanish looted, pillaged, slaughtered. There wasn't much left of the town once they'd actually finished doing all this. And unfortunately for the Dutch revolt, in the wake of this, the other Dutch towns surrendered. As soon as the Spanish arrived, well, most of them did anyway. A lot of them, you know, they'd see the Spanish coming. They heard what happened in Mechelen. And they're like, all right, we're, we're out. That's it. We're not, we're not fighting this one. But a few didn't. A few tried to hold out. On the 14th of November, the town of Zutphen was, uh, was, was not so welcome, welcoming to the, uh, the new Spanish overlords. And unfortunately for the, uh, the people there, they suffered the same fate as Mechelen. They were put to the fire and the sword. And again, not much left of Zutphen once they were finished there. The next town the Spanish arrived in, however, was Narden, and they surrendered immediately after what uh, you know after hearing what had happened in Mechelen and in Zutphen. But the townspeople, as a as a condition of their surrender, they agreed to hand over supplies and swear an oath of loyalty to King Philip II in order you know to save the town. They were going to surrender and obviously try to save their lives here. But when the full Spanish force arrived on the 22nd of November, after these negotiations had take place, taken place, the townspeople. Instead of being, you know, left to live their lives as, as you know, as the surrender had agreed that, that they would be able to, they were instead herded into the guild hall, herded into the church, and these buildings were then set on fire after the doors had been locked. The townspeople inside burned to death, and the Spanish then continued their fury by pillaging and then razing the town to the ground. They even forced peasants from neighbouring towns to come and destroy some of the buildings that were still left standing once the Spaniards had finished. Around 3,000 people lived in Narden before the massacre, and only 60 of them survived the Spanish fury. The thing was, by now, the Spanish had maybe made just a few too many examples here. All these atrocities, the slaughter, the pillaging, the raising, it was starting to catch up with them and starting to play into this, uh, to something that was, that was known back then as the Black Legend of Spain. Anti-Spanish propaganda had all, you know, it was already flying about, you know, amongst all the Protestant areas of the world at this stage, but it began to crop up even in even greater numbers as a result of what had happened here with the Duke of Alba. And King Philip's the, his reputation, it took an absolute pasting because he was the one who had obviously authorised and, and, and was behind all of these uh, these horrific atrocities that his, his armies were committing. And what's worse for the Spanish here, it galvanised more and more Dutch towns to come over to the side of the rebels. So I reckon King Philip might have, might have overshot things there a little bit, uh, just a little bit there, feel old son, because what you've ended up doing is, you know, you've ended up actually making too much of an example of, uh, you know, of these poor Dutch towns. And, and as a result, just... Few, ultimately fueled the fires of rebellion even further here. So, in any case, regardless of the, the, you know, the response to what's going on here, the Spaniards, they march on, and this time they're marching towards Harlem. Harlem had uh, originally kept itself out of the Dutch Revolt, but by now, again, that because of what's happened in Narden, because of what's happened with the, with, with the Spanish Fury, they are ready to whack on the battle clogs and fight for William the Silent, no worries at all. So the Spaniards, they arrive on the 11th of December, 1572, to the town of Harlem, the city of Harlem, and they lay siege to it. This walled city is now surrounded by the Spaniards. They can't, well, actually, not completely surrounded, because initially the siege wasn't very effective at all. Harlem, at the time, was built on a huge lake. This lake is now since been reclaimed. People actually live there today where it used to be. 
Um, and ships could bring food and supplies over the lake to the people living in Harlem. So the Spanish, obviously, you know, not a very effective way to run a siege when you've got ships coming in bringing food and whatever else. So they tried to dig under the walls. But the Dutch countered this by digging their own tunnels and destroying and collapsing the Spanish tunnels as they were being dug in. Eventually, the Spanish called in a bunch of ships from Amsterdam, which was still loyal to the Spanish here, um, to try to seize control of the lake. And the Dutch countered this by bringing in the good old sea beggars to fight a battle with the, the ships from Amsterdam on the lake. But even that wasn't enough, right? The Spanish did finally manage to seize control of the lake, even though the sea beggars were there for, uh, trying, to, trying to defend it, and ultimately stopped food from entering the city and slowly but surely ground down the city's morale as well as their supplies. So they began to mount attacks on the walls of Harlem, meaning the people inside were constantly trying to rebuild the walls from within. And there's this story about, uh, about a woman in Harlem called Kino Siemensdok de Hasselaer, who worked tirelessly to help defend the walls and by some accounts also took took part in defending the city from attack. I'm not 100% sure how much of this is actually true because every version of Hasselow's story was, was a little bit different and, you know, some of them read like a fisherman's tale. The fish was getting bigger, bigger, bigger every time. But the story goes that Hasselow rounded up a bunch of women who stood on top of the wall and threw down wreaths of burning tar at the Spanish soldiers below. Like a bloody game of coits, mate. She's pinging down these wreaths, trying to bung them you know, around the necks of the, of the Spanish soldiers there. One story even mentioned how one soldier, after getting done by one of these wreaths, chucked himself in a river to put it out only to sink straight to the bottom bottom of it and drown thanks to his armour. In any case, we don't know how much of Hassler's story is true, but generally these legends emerge from a few grains of truth. So maybe she was up there playing a game of fiery courts. Who really knows? At the end of the, at the, end of the whole thing, however, it doesn't matter because Harlem, it falls to the Spanish, ultimately. They'd held out for much, much longer, way longer than expected, but ultimately they were forced to surrender on the 13th of July, 1573, after seven months of a you know, long and protracted siege here. So now the Spanish obviously had learned a few lessons from the effects of their depredations from the year before uh, because they didn't raise it to the ground and murder everyone inside you know maybe finally they're starting to show a little bit of restraint not trying to galvanize the rebels even further with more tales of slaughter here instead they ransom the city for a quarter of a million guilders although mate you know i don't want i don't want you to think that the spanish didn't get any slaughtering done on the contrary they took the entire garrison of men defending the city and executed almost every single one of the defending soldiers so of course there was still plenty of fury but not quite they weren't quite as furious as before there the thing was however the siege of Harlem, despite ending in defeat for the Dutch, it showed something very important. It showed the Dutch revolt that the Spanish were not invincible. They were, in fact, totally vincible. And it was just a matter of putting up a strong enough fight for a Dutch rebel city with crumbling walls and a lake that was captured you know, by, by, the, by the, 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 the pitiful Spanish Navy here, for it to hold out for over half a year against the Spanish. Very, very big deal indeed. Very big deal. And it bolstered the morale of the Dutch revolt as the Spaniards continue to march about trying to restore Spanish authority. And this boost to morale, this you know, this demonstration that, Span- that the Spanish might be able to be beaten, it was a critical factor in how the next major battle between the two sides played out. This time it was in Leiden. Leiden, big city. Uh, it had seen what had happened in Harlem and as, as a result had stocked itself up right you know, right up to the to the bloody wazoo, as full as a goog it was, uh, in case it was attacked as well. Very smart move, as this was, this was where the Spanish headed to next. They arrived in October 1573 and they laid siege to the city. Of Leiden. It was not only defended by Dutch rebels, however, by this stage, more people from around the Protestant world have, have become interested in defending the, the Dutch revolt and, and working alongside the Dutch there. So you've got English, you've got Scottish, you've even got French Protestants there who had come to ha- help out the Dutch revolt. They had about 11,000 men to fight off the Spanish 15,000. 
thousand. So this one, a little bit more of a, you know, a little bit of a, a bit more of an even fight at least, a bit more of a fair fight. And the Spanish, they kick off the siege in October, as I say, but they have a hard time here, very, very hard time. Leiden, not only very prepared, of course, with its defences, nice big city walls that were uh, well-maintained, unlike Harlem there, Leiden has infinite food. The Spanish, hey, they have to endure a tough winter outside the walls while the Dutch and their allies are sleeping in comfortable beds inside the city. And the Spanish couldn't dig tunnels. The tunnels kept collapsing. And the walls, as I say, very good shape. The siege was not going well at all. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. While the siege was going on, William the Silent, he is busy organising a big army to break the Spanish siege and, and, and uh, you know, and, and chase the attackers away here. And in April 1574, once the winter was over, he's got this army together and he sends them off to give the Spanish what for. Now, this does break the siege before the Dutch army even arrives because, of course, the Spanish, they hear what's going on. They hear that this army is mobilising and so they lift the siege to go off to meet the new, the new Dutch army. But they're beaten to it by a second Spanish army that was coming in to reinforce them and this Spanish army beats the Dutch at the Battle of Mukaheda. Now, rather foolishly, this was, you know, an opportunity for the people in Leiden to uh, to restock their supplies, reinforce their garrison while the siege had been lifted, but they didn't do it. They didn't actually manage to uh, to take advantage of this opportunity, and it means that when the Spanish turned up, the reinforced Spanish turned up now to restart the siege in May, the people of Leiden, they're in big trouble. There was a lot of talk in Leiden about surrendering. They expected this uh, Dutch army to come and kind of deliver them. Uh, but as a result of the, the defeat of the Dutch army at the Battle of Mukahade here, uh, William, the, the silent, now has to scramble to, to find other plans. And, and Leiden wants to surrender. So William, he sends them a carrier pigeon and he says, listen, you just need to hold out for another three months because I've got another trick up my sleeve. I've got another plan. I'm going to save this city. Don't worry about it. What was William's plan? I'll tell you this. He needed some time to pull it together. It was a pretty bloody ambitious plan. It was pretty a pretty funny one, to be honest, here, as, you, as you'll discover. Leiden's food supplies were dwindling very, very swiftly. So William, he's hurrying about, busy as anything. He's pulling together a big fleet of ships. Ships, you, you ask, to bring to an end the siege of a city that isn't on a waterfront. It might sound ridiculous, but warfare in the Low Countries offers a few interesting wrinkles when it comes to this sort of thing, I can tell you. William's plan, he goes to the sea beggars, he goes to his old mates, the sea beggars, he goes, listen here, you fellas, I've got another job for you. I want to break the siege on Leiden, and I reckon you blokes are men for the job. And they go, mate, what are you talking about? What are you, we're pirates, we're on the sea, we use ships, mate. We, what are you going to do? You're gonna, you want to stick wheels on the bottom of our ships and, and get us to bloody Flintstone our way into the, uh, you know, inland? What are you going to do? It's miles and miles inland. And William goes, mate, don't even worry about it. 
I've got it all sorted. You know, you know how the, the area around Leiden, it's all protected by dikes, right? Great big walls holding back the sea. And, and they go, mate, everyone knows about it. Of course, low countries, Netherlands, all below sea level. That's what we're all about. We're all, you know, all about the dikes, all about holding back the sea level because, you know, without them, we'd be halfway underwater. We'd bloody, we'd be bloody New Atlantis, mate, wouldn't we? And William goes, well, what we're going to do, what we're going to do, we're going to get you blokes to line up in your ships next to the dikes and then... We are going to destroy the dikes. We're going to flood the area around the city. And we are going to create this bloody new Atlantis, mate. And you blokes are going to surf in towards Leiden on your ships as these dams break. These dikes are broken here. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to sail into the town of Leiden on your ships, blow the Spanish to pieces, break the siege by dinner time. What do you reckon? And the sea beggars, being, of course, more or less up for anything, agree to it straight away they're like mate love it absolutely surfing in on you know after breaking these dikes love love the idea of it fantastic when do we start so william is going to surf a bunch of pirates across miles of flooded farmland towards a besieged city you know as you do in order to break this siege the people in leiden weren't too happy about the plan i can't imagine why it sounds pretty foolproof from where i'm sitting uh, but, you know, they're talking about, oh, you know, it'll, oh, it'll wreck the area around the city. It'll flood it. It might, might destroy the city itself. Oh, boo-hoo. But eventually they give in to William's plan. It's the best they've got. They're out of food. They don't have many other options. So William's plan ultimately goes ahead. In August 1574, the sea beggars get themselves into position along the, along the edge, you know, the edge of the land where the dikes are near the, uh, the coastline uh, outside of Leiden. The dikes are cut. And the sea rushes in towards the city and sailing bravely in on this wave of water of the sea beggars, determined fury sparking in their eyes, the light glinting once again off the cutlasses in their teeth, hell-bent on delivering the good city of Leiden from under the yoke of the besieging oppressors until they run aground. Oops, yeah. Even after breaking the dikes, not enough water had spilled in land to allow the uh, the ships to make it all the way to the city. And a whole lot of other stuff went wrong too. William, the, you know, the bloke who was supposed to be leading this whole thing, he became deathly ill. He was unable to lead the charge. The wind made it impossible for the sea beggars to make any further progress. And the Spanish, seeing what was happening, shored up their defences of the canals and the waterways that would still be deep enough for these ships to actually get through. So, they, you know, they're securing bridges, they're securing the high ground, fortresses, whatever else, anywhere that they know they're going to be able to defend. Unfortunately, it wasn't this great big surprise sort of sneak attack that the uh, that the Dutch were hoping it would be. Now, the people of Leiden, they've seen what's happened here. They've seen the sea beggars sort of run aground there like that. They've seen the Spanish uh, move around and uh, and shore up their defences, whatever else. And they realise they're in, they're in deep poop here. So they start to demand that the city surrender to the Spanish immediately. But the mayor, a bloke named Peter van der, van der Werf, he held fast. This guy was incredible. When people Apparently when people came and complained to him that they had nothing to eat, he reportedly offered them his arm to eat if they were so hungry. And they declined this offer, but still, that's how serious this bloke was. I tell you what, and it was a bloody good thing that he did he did hold fast in this way because he knew, he knew they were all dead. Surrender or no, they are all dead. Based on how the Spanish had behaved in the past, he knew that his only chance to save the city was to hope that William's plan was going to work. And would you believe it, a few days later, all of a sudden, things start going right for the Dutch again. The wind changed, ferocious winds blowing in from the west, which blew a bunch of water inland, rising the, raising the water level enough that the sea beggars could start moving their ships again. William jumped at the chance. He's recovered. He destroys even more of these dikes. And all of a sudden, the momentum was back with the Dutch in both a figurative and a literal sense once again. The rising sea levels also turned all of the, the Spanish defensive positions into little islands. So they've got all the high ground now, which has actually turned into small little islands there. And the Spaniards, all of a sudden, they can't mount an effective defense here. On top of this, the Spaniards... They're not equipped for 
or experienced with naval combat, unlike the Dutch, unlike the sea beggars here. And as a result, in the coming days, almost every single Spaniard turns on their heels and runs off, or swims off, I suppose. And the Dutch fleet was able to make it all the way to Leiden. And at long last, on the 3rd of October, 1574, Leiden was liberated by William and his fleet, and the Spanish siege was broken once and for all, and the people feasted on the white bread and the herring that the ships had brought with them. And to this day, the people of Leiden celebrate the 3rd of October, and the city council still gives out free white bread and herring to the people during the celebrations. How sweet is that? After this city was, you know, more or less rescued by wave-surfing pirates, they're still celebrating it today, which I think is just, is, is just fantastic. It's so, it's so, so cool. Anyway, the Spaniards were sent back to lick their wounds after this, but Spain as a whole was in a bit of a bad way. Their things aren't going too well uh, on, on, a, on a sort of broader sense for the Spanish Empire here. They're running out of cash to the point of bankruptcy, and the Dutch are able to capitalise on the weakening Spanish position, uh, you know, throughout Europe, throughout sort of European politics on a more local level here with this revolt. Um, this was ultimately until the end of 1576 when things are going quite well for the Dutch, when the Spanish bankruptcy actually has some unexpected and truly horrific consequences. We talked about the Spanish Fury before, and I'm sorry to say that it wasn't over just yet, because in November 17, oh, sorry, November 1576, Spanish soldiers in the Netherlands hadn't been paid for ages. They were growing, growing restless, they're growing angry, they're mutinying, you know, all these mercenaries haven't been paid, they're determined to get their coin one way or another. And the Spanish government responded by sending 400,000 florins from Spain to try to pay these unhappy soldiers and mercenaries. But the money was captured by the English after, after these Spanish ships attempted to shelter from a storm in an English port. Not a good move. So no money is forthcoming for these mutineering soldiers, for these, uh, you know, for, these, for these mercenaries there. So these soldiers started to ransack and loot Dutch towns. Firstly, Zierikzee and then Alst, before turning their attention to the rich merchant city of Antwerp. 6,000 angry Spanish soldiers descended on the city, which wasn't particularly well defended, and went on a rampage of terrible slaughter, murdering and killing and pillaging and looting and much worse. The sack of Antwerp remains, to this day, one of the cruelest and most horrific massacres in Belgian history. It, estimates run as high as 18,000 people dying at the hands of the Spanish as they brought this city to its knees. And, 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 they re and it really did. Antwerp at this stage was this bustling cosmopolitan mercantile city. It was one of Europe's preeminent trading cities, brimming with wealth and prosperity, thanks principally to its famous cloth market. But after having been ransacked and raised like this, it never fully recovered. Even years and years afterwards, Antwerp never got back to its glory days as one of the, the you know, the principal economic centers of, uh, of Western Europe there like that. However, even, you know, the death and destruction, terrible as it was, there was a silver lining for the Dutch rebels because, once again, this mass massacre strengthened the resolve of the Dutch people to fight the Spanish and, even more so than before, because it even turned some of Philip II's Catholic allies against him. Even the Catholic-controlled areas of, you know, the, the, the 17 provinces, this Dutch-speaking region, and Catholics outside of this whole 80 years war business, right, they start to turn on Philip II and start saying, mate, enough's enough. You've got to do something about this. It got so bad for the Spanish that the entire Dutch-speaking area unified briefly, 
briefly, but they unified all of the Dutch-speaking area, Protestant, Catholic alike, they unified with the signing of the Pacification of Ghent. This was an agreement between all of the, the, the entire, all the people in the 17 provinces here, uh, Catholic and Protestant alike, as I say, uh, an agreement between both rebel and loyal Dutch areas um, to force all of these uh, mercenaries, all these Spanish troops, force them out of the Netherlands. And this agreement was the first step in establishing a new Dutch government with William the Silent as a leading figure as a stat holder here attempting to hold this tenuous alliance together. So William, he's been propelled into this position of uh, you know incredibly important leadership now that you've got a very tenuously linked alliance between uh, broadly the North and the South, the, the, the Protestants and the Catholics uh, respectively here the, of the Dutch-speaking world. So he immediately busies himself with attempting to solidify this Dutch position. He's seeking out allies, he's signing treaties, he's chasing Spanish troops out of Dutch-controlled areas. He had a lot of successes in a lot of areas. However, he struggled to win over the Dutch Catholics in areas that were more sympathetic to Spain, more sympathetic to the Catholic faith here. In fact, so diff- so great were the differences between Dutch Catholics and in the in the South and the Dutch Protestants in the North that in 1579 they actually broke apart. This alliance, the the the, the pacification of Ghent, was again pulled together to to, uh, to to kick all these Spanish soldiers out that were going around murdering and, and looting whatever else. And once that was done, that these two these two areas fractured once again. And there's a huge amount of religious intolerance on both sides. Uh, I would say the Protestants probably are a little, a little less zealous than the Catholics, although still there were plenty of areas where Protestants were saying no zero, zero tolerance. There's no way that we're having Catholics come and uh, you know be part of uh, what we're trying to build here like that. William himself much more tolerant about it. He just wanted a united, uh, a united Dutch-speaking area, but it wasn't to be because, as I say, in 1579 they broke apart and the Spanish once again started to retake Catholic-controlled areas, in some areas quite willingly, because in the South, the Catholics signed what was called the Union of Arras. This separated themselves from the new Dutch government that had been set up, and once again, they pledged their allegiance to Spain and, and you know, the Catholic the Catholic rulers of, uh, of Spain and, and you know, the, the people that had been in charge beforehand. Now, in response to the Union of Arras, the Protestants in the North signed instead the Union of Utrecht, which formally consolidated the northern provinces and it set them against the Catholics, Dutch and Spanish alike, by establishing what was effectively a new nation. This was very much the beginning of the modern state of the Netherlands and, of course, from that later on in the 19th century, Belgium as well. So this this is what is seen generally in, in Dutch history as, as the beginning of what we, we know today as the Netherlands here. So very, very important time, very important time in Dutch history indeed. But William the Silent, he saw it as a failure. He saw the Union of Utrecht actually as a colossal failure, especially on his part. He had hoped to unify the Netherlands in its entirety. He'd hoping to, he, he was hoping to bring together all the Dutch-speaking people, regardless of religion. As I say, he was much more tolerant about these things, and he wanted to forge a country of Dutch-speaking people, Catholic and Protestant alike, but it wasn't to be. However, no worries. The Union of Utrecht more or less created this new nation, as I say, and William continues to do what he can to strengthen the Dutch cause. He continues to look for support from abroad. He brings in allies wherever he could find them, and generally, he makes things as hard as possible for Spain to meaningfully claim dominion over the Dutch. Uh, he does this in a range of ways that kind of backfire a little bit in some ways. He actually invites a couple of other monarchs to come and take 
control of, of, of or, or you know be the uh, all of a sudden be the king or the queen of uh, of this new newly created Dutch Republic including the Duke of Anjou who was the the brother of King Henry the third of France and even Queen Elizabeth the first I think got a tap on the shoulder but none of those things worked out and ultimately it means that the Dutch Republic is created in 1581 officially with a formal declaration of independence rejecting King Philip II as their ruler called the Act of of abjuration. This officially creates the Dutch Republic, also known as the United Provinces or the Seven Provinces, with William as its leader, the Stadtholder. The Dutch Republic, I might add, goes on from this point in 1581 to last over 200 years until 1795, until the end of the 18th century, the rise of Napoleon, which ultimately uh, brought it unstuck. But back then, William had pissed off King Philip II to the point that Philip has now put a bounty on his head. William is kicking goals with both feet to the point now that the Spanish have decided enough is enough. We've got to get this bloke out of here. And even before the act of abjuration had even been signed, Philip II declared William an outlaw. He even went so far to call him the enemy of the human race, which is a bit much, Phil, old son, really. You need to cool your jets there. And he promised 25,000 crowns to anyone who could kill William the Silent. Quite a few people try, and a few even came close. But it wasn't until 1584 that someone actually succeeded. This bloke's name was Balthasar Girard, and he had heard of the reward offered by King Philip II and decided he was the man for the job. And the story of this assassination is incredible. Check this out. In 1581, Girard joined a Catholic army fighting against the Dutch Protestants, hoping to get close enough to William, like during a battle or something. But this never happened. And so in 1584, after three years of trying this uh, this attack unsuccessfully, he left the army and took a different approach. Girard instead decided to be a little bit more direct. He travelled to where uh, William was based in the town of Delft. Uh, William worked in a building called the Prinzenhof. And Gerard went there one day to uh, to case the joint. He's hanging about, he's, he's checking the place out, seeing where all the entrances, exits are, trying to trying to pull together a plan in his head. Now, while he was doing this, uh, a guard come up to him and says, Oi, mate, you, what are you doing? Oi, you're bloody skulking about, looking suspicious as anything, all shifty, what are you doing? And Gerard says, oh, mate, oh, it's bloody, it's, you know, he's thinking quickly, he goes, oh, it's terrible, oh, I'm just, you see, I want, I want to go to that. I want to go in that church there, you know, for the congregation or whatever. You know, I want to go in there for the for the for the service for the the priest, whatever else. They're like, but look at the state of me. You know, in these shabby clothes and these bunged up shoes. I'm I'm not fit to attend it. I, you know, I, I I I couldn't I couldn't go and do it. And the guard goes, oh mate, oh geez, come on, that's no good. But I'll tell you what, it's all right. Listen, my boss William, he's a good bloke. He is. I'll see him if he, if he's got any spare cash, so you can go and get some new threads. Uh, you know, so you can go into church and and, and look all, all you know, spick and span or spiffy, whatever else. They're like this. So the guard goes inside the Prinzenhof and comes out. With 50 crowns, it's not clear if William knew about the money or not. It's not, it's not clear if William knew that the money had been given away, but it was definitely his money. It was definitely William's cash that was then given to Gerard by this guard. And Gerard goes, oh, bloody hell, mate. Jeez, oh, so generous of you. Thanks so much. I'm off shopping. Catch you later. Now, technically speaking, this wasn't a lie because he did go off shopping. He did go and buy something. But rather than going and buying, you know, some nice new duds to go to church, he went and bought a nice new set of pistols to shoot William with instead. Uh, He buys him off a soldier, and then a couple of days later, a day or two later, he goes back to the Prinzenhof, sneaks inside, hides in a dark shadowy corner, and waits for William to appear. 
After some time, William emerges and uh, he stops to talk to a, a mercenary captain from Wales. And at that moment, Gerard leaps out of the shadows, pulls out, brandishes these pistols that let's not forget, he bought with William's money and then shoots William twice. And William collapses to the floor and dies just moments later. But Gerard didn't see this because he was already fleeing. He was running at top speed to the walls of the Prinzenhof. His plan was to jump over the wall, down into the moat. He even had an inflated pig's bladder tied to him like a bloody floaty, mate. And then he was going to swim to the horse that he'd left there waiting for him. And he was going to, you know, ride away to freedom and and, and 25,000 crowns there like that. But it wasn't to be because as he was running to the wall of the Prinzenhof, he tripped and fell on a big pile of rubbish that happened to be in his way. But that that cleaner was, uh, you know, pretty glad they didn't do a proper proper job that day and was so uh, and, and as a result of her tripping and falling like this uh, was captured by the guards who beat nine types of crap out of him. As they restrained him and uh, and, and obviously brought him in and, and, and imprisoned him, locked him in a dungeon there. Now, the story gets pretty grim here for Gerard because uh, he was then interrogated and tried and he was sentenced to be tortured and then executed. Now, even by the standards of the time, I tell you what, his sentence was incredibly brutal. Now, I don't really want to go, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail because it is incre- it's very, very, it's very graphic, the stuff that happened to him. And if you want to go and look it up, I, I, I encourage you to do it. Just don't do it while you're eating or if you've got a weak stomach or anything else like that because... Wow, wow, wow. Some of the stuff he went through before he was killed was just horrific. He was he was tied up. He was lashed and burnt and branded. He was crushed and flayed. I mean, all sorts of the most horrific things happened to him. And this is all before he actually got killed. You know, finally, after days of torture, he was finally executed. He was courted, disemboweled, had his heart torn out, and then was beheaded. I mean, we've all heard the term overkill, but... This gives the word a, a whole new meaning. I mean, the, the Dutch just had no chill, apparently. Anyway, William the Silent himself, William of Orange, even today, he's a huge, big Dutch hero. The national anthem of the Netherlands is a song about him. The national flag is based on his personal flag, and his descendants still sit on the royal Dutch throne even today. If you've ever wondered why Dutch athletes, you know, all wear orange, it's because of this bloke who is a huge deal in Dutch history. And the bullet holes that were made by Gerard while he was assassinating William the Silent are still visible today in the Prinzenhof in Delft. You can see pictures of them. You jump online and you can look at, you can see pictures of, of, of these bullet holes that were made, you know, nearly 500 years ago. And according to... This is even this is where it gets really cool. Well, I guess not for William, it's not very cool, but I mean in the broad historical sense it's kind of cool here because according to historian Lisa Jardine, William the Silent was the first ever head of state to be assassinated with a handgun. Anyway, the death of William sent the young Dutch Republic into a tailspin and it threatened its very existence as the Catholics closed in, sniffing out weakness with this uh, new Protestant republic, again, being crippled by the loss of its leader. But we already know that the republic lasted until 1795. So how did the Dutch get themselves out of this one? Well, to find out, you'll have to tune in next week for more ridiculous stories from the 80 Years' War, including an updated Trojan horse story, the capture of a Spanish treasure fleet, and an old man hobbling to his execution with a walking stick.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is half of the story of the 80 years. Well, we didn't even get 40 years in, but you'll find out exactly why next week. We'll get across it all then, so I hope you'll join us then. Very quickly going to run through some housekeeping stuff. Actually, it's not going to be quick. It's going to be long because there's some big changes, big, big changes in the pipeline coming for half House history. So, of course, halfhousehistory.net, that's the website, all, all the previous episodes there, whatever else. Contact form as well if you want to get in touch so you can send me an email like that. But let's get on to the good stuff. Patreon has just been kicked into the next gear. We now have tiers. We now have actual proper reward levels, which range from things like early access to episodes, uh, access to the scripts I use while I'm uh, recording these, the notes that I make for myself, uncut, unedited episodes, so you can listen to me burp and fart and slurp down water if that's the sort of thing you're into. You can also become a co-executive producer of the show, and I will send you actual, real, literal business cards with your name on them for Half-Assed History if you want to subscribe at the highest tier available. Um, for members who, for people who are already on uh, Patreon members, I don't know how you can adjust your membership to to get onto one of the tiers, but I suggest you do that quick, bloody smart, my friends, so you start can you can start enjoying all of the benefits because they start with this episode. Um, in addition to that, if you haven't become a Patreon member and you're thinking about it, there has never been a better time to join the Patreon, and I'll tell you why. Half Fast History merchandise is currently in production. I'm very, very excited about this. I can't believe this is actually happening, but it is. Half Fast History merch is being made as we speak. We have notebooks, magnets, t-shirts, badges, stickers, all sorts of stuff, right? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, regardless of whether you have given me $1 or $100, every single person on Patreon is going to receive a free, well, it's not really free, you've already given me money, so whatever, but still, you're going to receive a, a, a care package. You're going to receive a half ass History merchandise bundle. You're going to receive everything but the t-shirt if you've already pledged up, if you've given me up to 50 bucks already throughout the, the life of the show. Anyone over $50 is going to get the full Monty, a, a complete mega double, triple, quadruple, platinum diamond package bundle with uh, with every piece of merchandise I've got and some other stuff thrown in there as well. So if you've been thinking about it, if you've been umming and ahhing about it, now's the, now's the time to do it. The deadline is October 31. By the end of the month, once the, pro, the payments are processed for the end of the month for, in November, I'm going to send out all of the merch and you need to make sure your address is on uh, on your Patreon profile as well if you want me to send this stuff out. And I'll be getting in touch with people uh, about uh, sizing for t-shirts if you if you're going to receive some of them and uh, anything else that I need, any other details I need about some of the higher tiers as well, they're like that. But look, if you're not going to, uh, you know, if, if, if you've been thinking about uh, jumping on Patreon, if you've been thinking about chucking me a couple of dollars, now's a great time to do it. You're going to get some free swag in the mail if you do that. But if you don't, and if it's not something that interests you, if you're not something you're capable of doing at the moment, I absolutely understand. And of course, these episodes are always going to be free and I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to gatekeep too much of the stuff that I have. It's, it's all bonus. It's all bonus. The stuff you're getting now is always going to be the way that it is and that's not going to change. So, Thank you so much to the people who are chucking me money on Patreon. The chickens are finally coming home to roost, and I'm very excited to finally be giving a little bit back now after you've been supporting me so generously for so long. And, of course, still to the people who are just supporting me just by listening to the show, thank you so very much as well. Look, if, you know, if you're not in a position to, to, uh, to support the, the show on Patreon, that's totally fine, and I absolutely, I absolutely understand. But uh, if you could do us a favour and just spread the word of the show, if you just tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people that you feel ambivalent about it, don't really care, uh, as long as they click on it, they don't have to listen to it. Let's just click on it, mate. Just get those numbers up just get those numbers up that's all that really matters but uh, that you'd certainly be chopping me out a, a pretty big favor if you could do that anyway 
Sorry about the very long housekeeping nonsense there. It, uh, you know, it won't be a regular fixture here. I just want to keep people uh, a, sort of abreast of, of, of some of the changes that are being made here and, of course, remind you that now is there's never been a better time to become a Patreon of Half-Ass History because yeah, you're actually going to get something now for the money you're giving me. Anyway, that's enough of that. We're going to close the show out, as usual, with a, a question posed on Reddit. Uh, again, this one adapted from a question uh, posed by Reddit historian hyperactive underscore snail three. They want to know... During the Eighty Years' War, how did the soldiers manage to fight so long if the average peasant only lived to be 40? 